Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this series, we explore recent developments in clinical research and how these are impacting treatment strategies in both the adjuvant and metastatic treatment settings. To begin, we visit Dr. Joseph Sperano, who's been the principal investigator of a number of major national breast cancer clinical trials and currently chairs the so-called Taylor X study, evaluating the role of the Oncotype DX assay in the management of women with early breast cancer. I asked Dr. Sperano to comment on some of the most important recent advances in the field, and he began our conversation by discussing the oldest form of systemic therapy of breast cancer, endocrine treatment. Well, clearly the major change that's taken place in the last five years in postmenopausal women with regard to endocrine therapy has been the overwhelming amount of evidence demonstrating that aromatase inhibitors are more effective than tamoxifen whether that be instead of tamoxifen as initial therapy or whether it be after two to three years of taking tamoxifen in lieu of taking continued tamoxifen or whether that be after five years of taking tamoxifen in lieu of or in comparison to taking nothing. The other significant point, I think, as it relates to use of AIs is the remarkable observation, I think, that even up to three or more years after completing adjuvant tamoxifen therapy with delayed initiation of an aromatase inhibitor, one can see a reduction in the risk of recurrence. So here we're talking about introducing an endocrine therapy between 8 and 10 years after the primary breast cancer. And to me, that's just a remarkable observation that one can do something clinically meaningful at that point in the person's course. I think the other issue that we haven't paid as much attention to is how do we translate this information into the management of premenopausal women with early-stage breast cancer? And this has clear implications because we can't use AIs in premenopausal women because of their mechanism of action. The aromatase inhibitors really are only effective in postmenopausal women because they require that there be no ovarian production of estrogen. However, postmenopausal women do have some detectable circulating levels of estrogen mainly because of conversion of other hormones to estrogen by the enzyme aromatase, which can be found in liver and and adipose tissue and, and other organs. So aromatase inhibitors work by blocking that enzyme, either partially or completely, and cause circulating estrogen levels in postmenopausal women to decrease by 95% or more when one uses very sensitive assays to detect those levels. One can't detect those levels by conventional assays. So if one just sends a routine assay, a commercial assay, you'll see an estrogen level of, say, generally 20 picomoles per milliliter. So one needs to do very sensitive assays to pick up that level of a decrease. So tamoxifen, on the other hand, works as a selective estrogen receptor modulator, that is, by binding to the estrogen receptor and inhibiting the interaction between estrogen and the estrogen receptor and blocking, essentially, estrogen-stimulated growth. So the issue here is that you have non-aromatase-derived sources of estrogen in premenopausal women. So, of course, this raises the question, if you do block ovarian function in a premenopausal woman and you make them postmenopausal, either by surgically removing their ovaries, irradiating their ovaries, or giving them a gonadotropin-releasing hormone, and you used an aromatase inhibitor instead of tamoxifen in that woman who was previously premenopausal and now is postmenopausal, would you get a similar treatment effect as you would in a postmenopausal woman? 
And the answer to that question currently is unknown. It's likely to be yes, but it's currently unknown. That has to be weighed against the risks associated with inducing premature menopause. And there are certain risks, long-term risks, that we're not fully aware of right now. But I would say that for a young premenopausal woman who has not developed permanent chemotherapy-related amenorrhea, who is at high risk of having a recurrence, generally because of many positive axillary lymph nodes, I think it's reasonable to have a discussion about ovarian suppression, either permanent or temporary, in conjunction with an aromatase inhibitor in that setting. There are clinical trials ongoing now to try and more precisely identify that. I think the second major area as it relates to aromatase inhibitors is taking into account non-cancer-related issues into the decision-making process. As medical oncologists, we probably don't do enough of that. For example, there may be patients where tamoxifen is still a very reasonable or perhaps a preferable choice over an aromatase inhibitor. That, for example, might be a thin Caucasian woman who either is at high risk for osteoporosis or has baseline osteoporosis, because we know that tamoxifen is relatively bone-preserving relative to aromatase inhibitors, particularly if that woman does not have a history of thrombosis, either a personal history of thrombosis or a family history of thrombosis, which would put her at an increased risk of tamoxifen-associated thrombosis, and particularly if that woman has had a prior hysterectomy and doesn't need to be concerned about the small but definite increased risk of uterine cancer. The third, I think, important issue is, are there scenarios or are there circumstances where it might be preferable to sequence the administration of endocrine agents rather than just going with an aromatase inhibitor up front in the postmenopausal woman? Those studies are ongoing, and my own personal opinion is that the aromatase inhibitor should be the default position and the default option unless you have a situation where an aromatase inhibitor may not be an appropriate choice for a woman or for a woman who has had problems tolerating an aromatase inhibitor and really needs endocrine therapy. You mentioned before about the issue of the premenopausal patient who stops having menstrual periods with chemotherapy. When you see a patient like that, at that point, can you start treating her like a postmenopausal patient? I think you need to be very, very careful about that. The likelihood of having a return to ovarian function is highly dependent upon the age of the patient. So the older the individual is, the less likely it is to return. Secondly, I think it would be wise to always confirm a postmenopausal state, usually by checking an FSH level to assure that it's elevated and an estradiol level to assure that it's suppressed, and then repeating that level generally at three-month intervals, at least for the first year or so. Because if the amenorrhea persists for a year, then it's likely that it will not return. But I think actually this would be the ideal scenario for a woman who has chemotherapy-related amenorrhea, and there's uncertainty about return of ovarian function. This would be the ideal circumstance, I believe, for the sequencing of tamoxifen followed by an aromatase inhibitor. Can you talk a little bit about the side effects and toxicity profile of aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen? Well, the aromatase inhibitors, the notorious side effect are the arthralgias, which occur in about a third of women in the randomized trials that compared aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen. There was about a 5% higher prevalence of arthralgias in postmenopausal women. There was about a 1% discontinuation rate due to that toxicity. And that can be a major problem and can be very difficult to deal with. Oftentimes, the symptoms may not be severe, but they're low-grade and they're noticeable. The second, of course, is hot flashes or hot flushes, which can occur with either aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen. 
So those far and away are the most common side effects. Occasionally, you may find a patient who develops diarrhea as a complication of AIs. You can occasionally see dyspnea, particularly in patients who have COPD or a chronic lung disease. But I would say that those are the most common. With regard to tamoxifen, the most common would be also hot flushes. Leg cramps are quite common and can be problematic. That doesn't seem to be a problem for the AIs. And then finally, there are genital urinary symptoms, which can occur with both classes of agents. What about more serious complications with the two treatment strategies? Certainly for the tamoxifen, the most serious complications would be thromboembolic disease. And there's about anywhere from a two to a threefold increased risk of thromboembolic disease. It's important, I think, to question patients about either a personal or family history of thrombosis. And because it's known that those individuals who do have that do have an increased risk of developing tamoxifen-associated thrombosis. Of course, there's also about a two- to three-fold increased risk of uterine carcinoma for postmenopausal women. And so women need to be advised that if they develop abnormal vaginal discharge or at least vaginal bleeding, that they should report that immediately. One of the problems has been the overutilization of transvaginal ultrasound in that population. What it results in is about the fact that you detect an abnormal endometrial stripe or thickening or cystic changes in about 30% of patients, it often leads to unnecessary biopsies. And it generally doesn't result in detecting uterine cancers earlier. Although I think that was fairly commonly done, I would say, five or 10 years ago, it is less commonly done now. What about bone and aromatase inhibitors? Well, I think certainly as medical oncologists, we're paying a lot more attention to bone health issues than we did in the past. Generally, I think that, you know, it's important to follow the standard recommendations for screening for osteoporosis or osteopenia, so any woman over the age of 65 or women between the ages of 50 and 65 who have established risk factors. And I would say that the use of aromatase inhibitor would now be an established risk factor. So certainly getting a baseline DEXA scan would seem to be a reasonable thing to do. I think it's more controversial in terms of how often one needs to monitor that individual I was reassured to see data from the ATAC sub-study indicating that after five years of AI therapy, only about 15% of patients had osteopenia or osteoporosis, 15 to 20%, if you started out with normal bone density. So we may be doing more DEXA scans than we need to in this population. I don't know what the right frequency is, but I would be reassured for someone who's starting out with a normal bone density that perhaps I may not need to check it as frequently. One of the things that I think is important to emphasize is that for all women to take calcium and vitamin D, and although I routinely recommend that orally in my routine practice, I'm now making sure that patients get written information, written documentation that this is what they need to do, and I question them at each visit. And it surprises me how often women don't take the calcium and vitamin D, even though they're advised to do so. What about exercise, weight-bearing exercise, and exposure to sunlight? Any role of that? Yes, I mean, those are all factors that are known to reduce the risk of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women, and I would suspect that women getting AIs would be no different. And again, because there are a lot of issues to discuss, I tend now to provide written information to patients specifically related to bone health. Now, with tamoxifen for many years, we've utilized five years of therapy, and that's kind of the way we started out with the AIs. What is the optimal duration? What do you do? Do you continue beyond five years, or how do you approach that decision? For a woman who has received five years of tamoxifen, completed five years of tamoxifen, and then initiated an aromatase inhibitor, currently we have data really only out to five years, and the studies are ongoing 
that are taking those patients and re-randomizing them to continuing aromatase inhibitor for another five years. So in other words, endocrine therapy for up to 15 years versus stopping endocrine therapy. For a woman who has started from the outset with an aromatase inhibitor therapy, we really don't have any information beyond five years. And so when I reach that point in the patient's course, and that's occurring quite often now because it's been about five years since the aromatase inhibitors were shown to be useful as initial therapy, I often explain to patients that we don't really have information beyond five years, and we review what that person's residual risk of recurrence would be beyond five years, and then we make a decision together that integrates that information plus their own tolerance of the drug. Usually, if they've made it out to five years on the AI, it means they've probably tolerated it pretty well. And so I find that many of those patients who've tolerated it well, who do have a significant residual risk, many of them do opt to continue treatment. How do you calculate what the residual risk is, and what do we learn about the time course of recurrence in terms of when recurrences occur in breast cancer? Well, for endocrine therapy or for hormone-receptor-positive breast cancer, we do know that that disease is more apt to recur later rather than sooner. So we can see relapses between 5 and 10 years, sometimes after 10 years, as I personally have seen relapses after 35 years. And those are well-documented in the literature. When you're getting out to 35 years, then you're wondering whether you're dealing with just another second primary in the breast or the chest wall, if it's a chest wall recurrence. But nevertheless, we can see late recurrences, and we're more apt to see that than certainly in estrogen receptor negative disease. We don't have a lot of information about the so-called residual, or what I call residual risk of recurrence after five years of AI therapy. We do have it after five years of tamoxifen. So that information, I sort of guesstimate from the published literature as it relates to tamoxifen and try and extrapolate from that. When do we see recurrences in patients who have ER-positive tumors as opposed to those who have ER-negative tumors? What do the curves sort of look like? It's interesting because what you do see is you see this early spike for ER-negative disease. And then after about six to seven years, you see a decrease in that spike, obviously. And the curves for the ER-positive disease come together. So there's a clear difference in the first three to five years with a much higher relapse rate, somewhere between a two- to three-fold higher relapse rate for ER-negative disease compared with ER-positive disease. But when you get to six to seven years, the curves actually reverse so that you have anywhere from a two- to three-fold higher risk of having a relapse for ER-positive disease compared with ER-negative disease. And in one of the first studies that evaluated this and reported this, reported by Tom Safner in the JCO in 1996, you actually saw that effect out to 10 to 12 years, which was the final time point that was evaluated in the analysis. And there was also data from the overview showing similar effects. Let's talk about the issue of chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting, and we'll divide that out based on whether the tumor is HER2 positive or not. Let's start out first with a HER2 negative tumor, and specifically the issue of the patient who has an ER positive HER2 negative tumor. What do we know about the chemotherapy in that situation? Well, we do know that chemotherapy is effective in reducing the risk of recurrence. However, the magnitude, the proportional reduction is the same, whether you're low risk or high risk. The problem is that the absolute reduction is dependent upon what your underlying risk of recurrence is. Could you so, kind of explain that a little sure. bit more in terms of what absolute and relative reduction is? Absolutely. So, for example, if the relative risk of reduction is 30%, and again, that's the same across all risk groups, if you have a woman who has maxillary lymph node positive breast cancer that has about a 30% risk of recurrence with endocrine therapy alone, 
you add chemotherapy into the mix, you reduce that risk of recurrence by about one-third or about 30%. So you're reducing that risk of recurrence from 30% to 20%. So that's an absolute improvement of 10%. So 10 out of 100 people are cured or are free of disease who wouldn't have been because of the therapy. Exactly. But the other 90 have gotten treatment without having anything change. Exactly. Now you take another patient who has estrogen receptor positive disease that's axillary lymph node negative. That patient has only about a 10% risk of relapse with endocrine therapy alone. You add chemotherapy, you reduce the risk of recurrence by about 30%. That translates into a 3% absolute benefit for that individual. So again, the same proportional benefit, 30% for both patients, but a threefold difference, three or fourfold difference in the absolute benefit they're deriving from treatment. And that illustrates the problem that we have in estrogen receptor positive disease, particularly if they're low risk because of negative axillary lymph nodes, because we're over-treating the vast majority of patients that we treat. We need to treat at least 80% of them who would have been adequately treated or cured with endocrine therapy alone in order to benefit the 3 to 5% who are deriving benefit from chemotherapy. So right now, what do we have to try to guide us in terms of making this difficult decision about we have a patient who has an ER-positive tumor, so we know we're going to be able to give them hormone therapy, but what about the issue of adding in chemotherapy on top of that? Well, there are a number of clinical factors that are quite useful. One would be tumor size. So the larger the tumor size, the greater the risk of recurrence. And as a general rule, the risk of recurrence increases about 10% with each one centimeter of tumor size. So, for example, for a woman who has a tumor size of 2.1 centimeters or greater, if they have axillary lymph nodes, that actually technically falls in the category of stage 2 disease, even though the lymph nodes are negative. And that's because it's known that the large tumor size is associated with an increased risk of recurrence that will be comparable to, say, someone who had a smaller tumor with one positive axillary lymph node. So tumor size is very, very important. And it's also easy to measure and fairly reproducible. The second important characteristic is the grade of the tumor. And that could either be the grade of the nucleus or the so-called histologic grade, which takes into account both the nucleus and the cytoplasm. And in general, there are different ways to characterize nuclear and histologic grade, but it can be grouped into three major classes, low-grade, high-grade, and intermediate-grade. And as a general rule, about 10 to 15% of patients will have low-grade tumors, about 25 to 35% will have high-grade tumors, and the remainder will have intermediate-grade. And that's the problem, that the intermediate-grade is associated with intermediate prognosis, number one. And number two, there's a great degree of variability when reading grade from pathologist to pathologist, particularly when you're showing slides or when the slides are being reviewed by individuals who may just do general pathology and may not be breast cancer specialists. And even when you show slides to breast cancer specialists, you often get discordance in the reading in as many as a third of patients. So tumor grade is very, very important, but it suffers from problems with regard to reproducibility. But if you have a low grade or a high grade, that generally can point you in the right direction. Other factors include other histologic features such as lymphovascular invasion, which can predict increased risk of systemic recurrence. Patient age, age under 35, is an adverse prognostic feature independent of all other recognized prognostic features, so age in and of itself could be considered in the analysis. And HER2 expression as well. HER2 expression generally is associated with a more aggressive tumor. And then finally, there are these multi-gene signatures and diagnostic tests that are available that can help guide treatment, including the Oncotype DX and the Mammoprint assay, 
which can identify individuals who are at a higher risk of recurrence and which seems to outperform routine or standard clinical criteria when tested head-to-head. Can you talk a little bit more about what the Oncotype DX assay actually looks at? The Oncotype DX assay is a commercially available test that can be performed on routinely collected, processed, and stored paraffin-embedded formalin-fixed tissue. It requires only generally three 10-micron sections, so three small sections of the tumor. And the specimen is sent to a central laboratory which performs a test, genomic health laboratories, which then extracts something called RNA from the tumor and then utilizes a procedure called RT-PCR to accurately measure the amount of RNA expression in the tumor. And their technology allows them to evaluate a number of different genes. The assay includes 16 tumor-related genes and five reference genes. The reference genes are used to normalize the expression of the tumor-related genes and control for the variability of RNA, the RNA extracted from the clinical specimens. The tumor-related genes fall into several categories. They include an estrogen receptor group, a HER2 group, a proliferation group, an invasion group, and then three other individual genes that have prognostic value. And the result is computed using an algorithm into a score that ranges from up to 100 and predicts increased risk of recurrence, both distant and local recurrence, whether evaluated as a categorical variable, meaning low, intermediate, or high risk, or low score, intermediate score, or high score, or whether evaluated as a continuous variable, and seems to predict outcome more reliably than standard clinical criteria when compared head-to-head. Now, is this used in patients with all types of tumors or something more specific? It really should only be used in patients who have estrogen receptor positive, axillary lymph node negative tumors, and in situations where the information that you can get from the assay could lead or could influence your treatment decision. So, for example, if you have an elderly woman who has significant comorbidities who's not a candidate for chemotherapy, although doing the test may provide you with more accurate information that would predict the risk of relapse, it may not be necessary to do the test if it's not going to influence your treatment. Currently, there's information is lacking in patients with lymph node positive disease, and it is not useful in estrogen receptor negative disease because the assay was not developed for that specific population. Now, in the patients who have a high-risk recurrence based on the oncotype, what is done with those patients, and can you bring that risk down? Well, one of the interesting things about the assay is not its ability to predict, or I should say prognosticate, but its ability to predict benefit from specific therapies. So, for example, if we take patients that we select by routine clinical criteria, ER positive, lymph node negative, as I said before, we reduce the risk of recurrence by, on average, 30%. And so for an average patient, the absolute benefit's about 3%. And we have to treat all patients who fall into that category to benefit that 3%. With the Oncotype DX assay, about 25% may have a high recurrence score. And in that particular group, those individuals, rather than having a 30% reduction in the risk of recurrence, have a 75% reduction in the risk of recurrence from chemotherapy. And that translates into a 25% absolute improvement in outcome rather than a 3%. So what that tells us is that that specific group is really deriving a great deal of benefit from chemotherapy. At the opposite end of the spectrum, for patients who have a low recurrence score, and that can be defined in different ways, those individuals have a very low risk of systemic or local relapse at 10 years with endocrine therapy alone. 
And although adding chemotherapy could conceivably reduce their risk of recurrence by 1%, perhaps less, most patients and clinicians would be willing to forego chemotherapy if they knew that the prognosis was so good with endocrine therapy alone. It's the patients who have a mid-range or an intermediate recurrence score that's the problem because we do know that those patients do have a substantial risk of recurrence that generally exceeds 10% or more, but where it's unclear whether chemotherapy is going to be useful in that population. What kinds of chemotherapy do you generally utilize in a situation like that, ER-positive, node-negative tumor? And what kinds of chemotherapy do you utilize when the nodes are positive? That's a good question because I believe that there has been a tendency within the last few years to tailor the type of chemotherapy we use to the patient's underlying risk of recurrence based on a number of factors, one of which is the fact that more recent data suggests that some of the more modern chemotherapy regimens that we've been using over the last five to 10 years that include taxanes that have been shown to benefit women with early-stage breast cancer, that much of that benefit is driven by improvements in estrogen receptor negative disease with very modest, if any, improvements in estrogen receptor positive disease. So that made some people recommend sort of a risk-adopted approach of using regimens such as, for example, doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide or CMF for axillary lymph node negative disease and to use more aggressive taxane-containing combinations for lymph node positive disease. You're running a trial that's looking at the whole issue of Oncotype and where it fits in the Taylor X trial. Can you talk about that? Sure. Taylor X is an acronym that stands for Trial Assigning Individualized Options for Treatment. And it's the first trial to have emanated from a program at the NCI called the Program for the Assessment of Clinical Cancer Tests, which was designed to integrate modern molecular diagnostic testing into our clinical decision-making process and also to inform us about how to improve upon these tests. So the population that's been selected for inclusion in the trial is the population where we have the greatest degree of overtreatment with chemotherapy, and that is in patients with estrogen receptor-positive axillary lymph node-negative breast cancer, where, again, we know that we're curing about 80% of these patients with endocrine therapy alone, and where the absolute benefit from chemotherapy is modest. And, of course, they're seeing more and more lymph node-negative disease because of mammography. Absolutely. It's estimated there are about 125,000 new cases of estrogen receptor-positive lymph node-negative breast cancer diagnosed each year in the United States, and it represents about half of all newly diagnosed breast cancer and about 8 to 9% of all cancers diagnosed in the U.S. So it is a very common problem that's been accentuated by the fact that we're, again, over-treating the vast majority of those patients with chemotherapy because we don't have ways of precisely identifying which individuals are truly benefiting. So TaylorX seeks to accomplish this by integrating the molecular diagnostic test into the clinical decision-making process. So again, it's only for patients who meet established clinical criteria for chemotherapy, that is tumors exceeding a centimeter or smaller if there are unfavorable histologic features. And the patients and the physicians have to be willing to recommend and to proceed with chemotherapy and to have their treatment either be assigned or randomized on the basis of the test. So the trial is really not for patients who are not suitable candidates for chemotherapy. So you want people who can receive chemo and are kind of on the fence about it? Kind of on the fence about it or who have been convinced that chemotherapy is the right choice based on clinical criteria. So after a consenting process and pre-registration, a tumor specimen is sent to genomic health for the assay, and within 7 to 10 days of the assay coming back, 
the patient is registered onto the next phase of the trial. For patients who have a recurrence score of less than 11, which we've defined as low risk for this study, those individuals are assigned to receive endocrine therapy alone because we know that they have an excellent prognosis with endocrine therapy. For those who have a recurrence score of greater than 25, they're assigned to chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy because we know those patients are deriving great benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. And for those who have a mid-range score, which can range from anywhere from 40 to 60% of patients, those are the individuals that we're randomizing to chemoendocrine therapy, which is a standard arm, after all, because we would have, remember, treated these patients with chemoendocrine therapy based on clinical criteria versus endocrine therapy alone, which we regard as the experimental arm. So the trial is designed as a non-inferiority trial with the understanding that chemotherapy is the standard arm, and we're trying to determine whether subtracting chemotherapy is associated with a worse outcome. One of the tricky things about this study is the patient has to agree that the decision about chemotherapy, whether to have it or not, really is going to be assigned by the computer. It's a random, I guess, 50-50 chance that they're going to get chemotherapy. How do people respond to that? It's kind of a little bit of a challenging situation, I think. Well, unfortunately, randomization is the only way that we have in medicine to deal with situations where there is uncertainty about what the best treatment is. And here the problem is that we've continually layered on or expanded the indications for adjuvant chemotherapy such that we're treating a group of patients who really have a low likelihood of benefiting from the treatment. And so what we're trying to do in a very responsible and judicious way is to take this assay and use it to assign therapy in situations where we know the test is informative. And then for the remainder of the patients where the test results may not be informative, try and identify whether chemotherapy is really necessary in those circumstances. It is very possible that the benefit of chemotherapy is restricted to those individuals who have the high recurrence score. It's also possible that patients who have a mid-range score do derive some benefit. So we are trying to determine whether that's the case. My suspicion is that if there is a benefit in that group, it probably is going to be evident at a recurrence score that's in the higher range of the randomized group, and we need to identify what that range is. What about oncotype in patients whose tumors are HER2 positive? Well, the results from the NSABP trials and from the commercial experience indicate that the vast majority of patients who have HER2 positive tumors have a high recurrence score, have an elevated recurrence score. So in that circumstance, doing a recurrence score may not inform you about what that individual's prognosis is because you know that they're going to have a high recurrence score even without getting the test. And that's not surprising because HER2 is one of the genes that's evaluated in the recurrence score algorithm. Where are we right now in terms of adjuvant therapy of patients who have HER2-positive tumors? One of the amazing stories within the last couple of years has been the numerous trials showing a benefit for adjuvant trastuzumab in patients who have HER2-positive disease. The question has become, of course, how low do you go and at what risk level would you not administer trastuzumab to a patient who has a HER2-positive tumor? Certainly, if the patient has a HER2-positive ERP or negative tumor, I think most oncologists would recommend trastuzumab in combination with chemotherapy in that setting. The problem comes in for patients who have small tumors that are hormone receptor positive, and many of those patients can do well with endocrine therapy alone. Is it really necessary to give chemotherapy plus trastuzumab in that population? The third issue, I think, is for high-risk subjects who, for example, may be hormone receptor positive, 
but not be suitable candidates for adjuvant chemotherapy, would using trastuzumab in addition to endocrine therapy be useful without chemotherapy? And what I'm talking about would be, say, an elderly woman who has multiple positive lymph nodes. I would suppose the same could be speculated or said to be true for women who have hormone receptor negative disease as well. I think there's a legitimate question about whether giving adjuvant trastuzumab alone would be a reasonable option in that patient, and we just don't know the answer to that question. Are there situations in your own practice outside of a clinical protocol setting where you might consider that strategy of using trastuzumab without chemo? I have done that in a few select individuals, again, generally elderly women who have multiple positive nodes. Where are we in HER2 testing? There are two ways to test the IHC protein test or the FISH test. Where are we in terms of the accuracy of those tests? I mean, now it's more important than ever that they be done accurately. There's been questions in the past about that. Where are we right now? I think because of issues of cost and turnaround time and just familiarity with using conventional amine histochemistry in most hospital-based laboratories and even in reference laboratories, IHC-based assays looking for protein expression are being used. And For those patients who have three-plus positive tumors, that's generally enough to recommend trastuzumab, whether used for adjuvant or metastatic setting. For those who are two-plus in that setting, generally it would be reasonable to proceed to FISH testing because we know that only about 20% of those patients will be truly HER2-positive by FISH for looking for gene amplification. There may be other scenarios, for example, in patients where there may be discordance between the HER2-test result and the clinical picture, one may want to, for example, pursue FISH testing in someone who has a tumor that's one plus by IHC. What about the role, potential role in the future of assays like the Oncotype as a way to measure HER2 and ER as opposed to the way we're doing it now individually? Well, the Oncotype DX assay basically involves using, as I said, an RT-PCR technique to look for gene amplification. Some of the assays looking at gene amplification that are currently available by FISH are essentially doing the same thing. They're just using different methodology. So I do think we will see other assays in the future that may rely on RT-PCR, either on an individual basis for HER2 or as part of a global expression profiling.